Amen, amen. Hey, grab a Bible, get with me to the book of Exodus. If you're newer to the Bible, the, uh, the book of Exodus is just the second book into your Bible, so Genesis and then Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those that's around you and a seat back in front of you, and if you don't own one, leave with it. We want everyone walking out of here with a copy of God's Word. We uh, are so excited to jump into this study in the book of Exodus. It begins today, the last Sunday of July, and it'll wrap up, Lord willing, uh, the week before Christmas. And so we're going to spend our time uh, in this book, and, and we're, we're doing that very intentionally. Uh, and, and, and I want to spell out that intentionality and why God has led us to a deep study of the book of Exodus. But I, but I want to lead into that with this quote that you, if you've been around here, you've heard me reference from time to time. It's a quote uh, from A.W. Tozer, and he wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As I've chewed on that quote for years, I knew there was a, there was a profound depth to it. But honestly, right, we can generalize it and kind of fly over it. But I, but I believe he's so right about this. What we believe about God and who we believe God to be and whether we know this God intimately, it, 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 it dictates every area of our life. If we, if we believe that our God is holy, that he's holy, 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 it impacts the way we see our own sin, does it not? If we believe that God is love, it impacts the way we see our identity as one who's been uh, saved by him and held by him. And so what we believe about God, it, it is the most important thing about us. But we're not launching into a series on Exodus, which I believe is this beautiful unpacking of the character of this God who delights to deliver his people from bondage so he can dwell with them. It's not just so that we have more head knowledge of who God is. It's so that we intimately know who God is. And there's a vast difference, is there not? And all of us who are sitting here who know the moment the head knowledge crashed through the basement wall, you know, the basement floor of our head and, 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 and penetrated our heart, we know the vast difference that there is. But the book of Exodus, we're going to get caught up in the narrative. We're going to get caught up in the story of, of what this great God has done for his people. But in the midst of that, I want our whole time, the gaze of our hearts to be on the character of who our God is. Now, a little bit about this book. Many of us have an idea of what the, the, the word Exodus means, but Exodus literally means a going out or a departure. And if you're familiar with some Bible background, you, you know that great story of the going out that this book is all about. But, but the book of Exodus has really these kind of a, a very clear two parts to it. The first part of the book of Exodus is really summarized in chapters 1 through chapter 18. And that is the events of the Exodus itself. The, the story of how God delivers his people out from Egyptian bondage and towards their promised land destination. But then in 19, there's, there's a noticeable transition in the book. There's this, this meeting at Sinai and there's this covenant. Our God is a God of covenant. 
He covenants with his people. And, and, and there's from, from 19 to the end of the book, there's this beautiful detail of how God is covenanting with his people, how he is spelling out how these people are to worship him. And now, if you flipped right now to one of the chapters between chapter 19 and chapter 40, what you would find there is a whole lot of detail. There's a whole lot of detail to how the tabernacle was to be built. There's a whole lot of detail to how the priestly garments were to be constructed. There's a whole lot of detail of of how worship was to be executed to this God. But if our God is God, and this is spelling out how his people are to worship him, there's so much in these chapters that tell us who God is and why he is worthy of our worship. And so we're going to find chapters 1 through 18 are the events of this exodus itself. Chapters 19 to 40 are really God uh, uh, um, calling a people unto himself through this covenant who are to worship him. Uh, you, you see a bit of these parts even in what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 8 verse 1 we read this. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Here's, here's, you know, here's the first part of the book. Let my people go. And we're going to watch God work in supernatural ways to deliver his people and let them go. But then don't miss the purpose of this, that they may serve me or that they may worship me. So really, all of the book of Exodus can be summarized in this statement right here. The book of Exodus is about God delivering his people from bondage to dwell with them as they worship him. Do you know that the great God of the universe desires to dwell with us intimately? Do you know that? Now, do you know that? From cover to cover in our Bible, this is a story of a God who's always desired to dwell with his people. From the garden to the tabernacle to the temple to uh, God come in flesh and Jesus Christ to the spirit that he left with us to one day when we will be with him in the new heaven and the new earth enjoying his presence unhindered by sin. We have a God who delires, de- de- delights in dwelling. And that delight in dwelling with us means he delights in delivering us from the bondage of our sin that we would live lives of worship to him. And so this theme of delivered to dwell, that God has delivered us so we will dwell with him, is something we're going to come back to as a bit of a tagline again and again and again throughout our time in this series. But I got to tell you why I've anticipated this series maybe more than any I've preached in recent history. It's because I believe the most important thing for us is to truly know who God is. We, by nature, kind of um, as humans, as fallen humans and as in the culture in we live, we love to be so man-centered. We, we love to focus on very pragmatic things that help us and elevate us. Do you know the greatest thing we need? We need a daily glimpse of the glory of God. When Jesus said, seek first his, his uh, righteousness and his kingdom and all these things will be added, he's telling us something about the priority of, of life. Get our eyes off of us and get it on him and his kingdom. Everything else has a way of orienting itself rightly from there. And so the book of Exodus is just going to continue to give us this glimpse of the glory of God that my prayer for us is our response will be like that of Moses. We'll slip our shoes off, we'll get on our knees, and we'll just fall on the ground and worship to the Lord. 
I'm anticipating this series because not only does it give us this great glimpse of the glory of God, this book shows us how our God redeems, how He delivers His people out of bondage, how He sees them in their sin and their slavery and their suffering. And He is not distant and He is not disinterested but he comes near to deliver. This book is a book about the redemption of a great God. On that note, let me say this. You hear me say, you know, we're starting this, you know, series today, and we're going to be in Exodus till the week before Christmas, Lord willing. And, and you know, some people might want to go, well, it's going to be that many months before we're talking about Jesus again? I'm glad you're laughing. This, the, the, was, we were about a year old as a church, and I announced, uh, hey, next week we're going to begin a series on the life of David. We're going to be in it about nine months. And I was standing by the door after the service, and a guy walked up to me, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, you're going to preach from the Old Testament for nine months? <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I am. And he just shook his head and walked out. Listen to me now. Charles Spurgeon said it best when he said, from every Old Testament passage, we make a beeline to the Lord Jesus Christ. This whole book is a book about the redemption through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And again and again, from this very first Sunday to the very last Sunday, oh, by the way, the very last Sunday will be Exodus 40, where the glory of the Lord comes and fills the tabernacle. And then guess what? The very next week, we're going to go to John 1 on Christmas, that God himself in flesh comes down to tabernacle among us. Come on! That was my best Joe Catronio there. Come on! You're like, who's Joe Catronio? You'll, you'll figure it out. You'll... you'll and so we're going to make a beeline every week from what we're seeing in Exodus to the redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm, I'm anticipating this because Exodus shapes so much of the rest of the Bible. When you're in the Psalms, you'll see the psalmist reference Exodus again and again and again. When you get into the New Testament, as, as, the, as the New Testament writers are talking about, you know, here's a spoiler alert, this greater exodus we've experienced in Jesus Christ, they will point back to the exodus event and the redemption. And so it's so important we know the details of this book because so much of biblical literature later on is tied back to this. That's why I'm excited. Anyone else excited yet? Now... Uh, as I take us to the beginning of this book, I want to remind us of something. We're beginning a new book of the Bible, but we're not beginning a story. We're continuing a story. Uh, right now with the kids, we're reading the Chronicles of Narnia. We're on book, you know, we're on Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe right now. But, but all of these books work together to tell a bigger story. As we jump into Exodus, we're continuing where things left off in the book of Genesis. And so if you would, turn your eyes to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and, and I want to tie these things into where Genesis left us off. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were how many? What's it say? Were how many? Were 70 persons. 
Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. I want to read that again, because that's going to be a repeated theme, especially early on in the book of Exodus. But the people of Israel, they were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And so the first seven verses of the book of Exodus tell us this is a continuation of a story. And if you remember how the book of Genesis ended, the book of Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, whose brothers sold him to a caravan of traders, and he's taken down into Egypt. What his brothers meant for evil, God was using for good. That, that God would allow Joseph to find favor in, in, you know, in Potiphar's house and then in prison and then became second in command in such a way that when a, a, a famine hit uh, you know, just a huge area of the world at this time, people are coming to Egypt to, be, to, to find food, of which Joseph is overseeing. And so God uses Joseph to lead uh, this, you know, this, this small family, relatively small family of Israel at the time, 70 people, down into Egypt to be spared through the famine. Now, hear me, and if you're like a teenager in the room, listen closely. I remember as a teenager sitting in church when my pastor just said this phrase. He said, so always remember, Joseph led them into Egypt, Moses led them out. And I went, oh my goodness those stories are connected. Because sometimes, right, when we grow up as little toddlers, you know, in the church, we learn our Bible stories, and we learn about the story of Joseph, and then we learn about the story of Moses, and then we learn about the story of David, and we can forget all of these are connected, and God is telling one big grand redemption story of how he's calling a people to himself for his glory. And so all these things are connected. And now this family, again, relatively small, comes down into Egypt, but a new era has arisen in Egypt. Verse 6 told us that Joseph has died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel, they were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is where we pick up the story of the Israelites. From one relatively small family of 70, they have multiplied to fill the land of Egypt. And what we're going to find is that a new pharaoh is on the scene, and he doesn't like that they've multiplied. He's scared that they've multiplied. And where we're going to find the people of Israel here, God's people, is in an intense, intense place of suffering. And so... I want us, as we begin this series today, to just see this big idea that God sees us in our suffering and sends us a Savior. God sees us in our suffering and He sends us a Savior. And in the two parts to what we're studying today, I want us to look at the suffering of God's people, and it's going to be expelled out explicitly for us in chapter 1. But then we're not going to leave them in the hopelessness of that suffering because as chapter 2 begins, hope is arising that God is bringing a Savior on the scene. And so let me pray for us and let's ask for God's help. Father, 
I do pray for your help now. Lord, the greatest prayer for our study of this book is that we would see you and that we would know you and that it would lead us to be on our faces in worship of you. I don't pretend to think that we have that ability in and of ourselves. We need a deep move of your spirit here, Lord. Please, do not let us walk out of here the same we walked in here. Show us your glory. Show us more of who you are. Less of us, more of you. That's our prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First point I want us to write down is this. God's people have always faced suffering, and we will too. God's people have always faced suffering, and we will too. There's two paragraphs here in Exodus 1 that spell out the intense suffering of the people at this time. Pick it up with me in verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Do you notice any words there that were repeated? Slaves, ruthless. When, when I say to us that where we find the people of Israel in this time, in this generation, under this king, life is hard. And that is an understatement. They are in bitter slavery. They have been, uh, 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 harsh taskmasters have been set over them. When we say life is hard for them, we can't even comprehend how hard life is. They're working in brick, they're working in mortar, they're building these store cities. And yet in all of this, we need to remember God said this would happen. All the way back to when he was interacting with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, we find these words. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for how long? Right? So, so that gives us, right, some frame of reference on time. It's not like, okay, boom, you know, Joseph died, and then this happened, and then they're going to be... No, 400 years. But then here's some good news. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Only God can do that. But we're, we're, we, we meet the Israelites here as Exodus starts in a place of oppressive slavery and of deep hardship and of great suffering. But if that wasn't bad enough, the next paragraph tells us of even more intensive suffering. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. The Hebrews are now living in a place where there's a command directly given to those in charge of delivering life into this world. That if these Hebrews have a boy, kill them the moment they're delivered. To bring this to a bit of reality for us, I want you to imagine, I want you to think about those in your life who have just recently had a baby boy. And now imagine the oppressive evil and hardship in which these Israelite families find themselves living. But now let me, let me reveal to us these two heroes here. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Love it. I don't have any other comment. I, I love it. Now look at how God deals with this, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, amen? And the people multiplied, and here it is again. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So these two heroes, who who we know by name in the word of God, notice that. You know what everything was for a pharaoh of Egypt at this time? That you would lead and build in such a way that your name would be remembered. What's pharaoh's name? Hmm? No name pharaoh. But we know the names of these midwives. Who took an edict from an evil king and said, no, we serve a king that's greater than you. No name pharaoh. Named heroic midwives. And because of this, God's people are continuing to multiply and they're continuing to grow in strength. But it doesn't mean that Pharaoh's done. He doesn't give up on his evil plans. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded, now I want you to see in the Bible, who does he command now? Then Pharaoh commanded who? All his people. The command now has brought in not only to those delivered, directly delivering, now he's commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now come on, imagine living in this place. Young moms and dads of baby boys, what happens in your heart every time your son makes a noise? Every time he cries in a house, knowing that you live in a place and you're surrounded by people who've been directly commanded by their king to that they're able to walk into your house, grab your son, and cast him into a river. When we talk about the horrors of the pain of the suffering that we find the Israelites in, we can't even fathom the evil. 
We can't even fathom the hardship. We can't even fathom the suffering. And as I was studying this this week, I just, I just want to note something here. I'm going to take us out of the story a minute, and I want to note something here that's important for us. I want us to see something, that one of the main agenda items for the evil one throughout all of history has been to attack the lives of children born and unborn. I'm not reading that into the text. I'm not trying to pull something from contempt. I want us to see something. That there's an agenda item of the evil one, whether it's an edict through an ancient Egyptian king, whether it's through pagan child sacrifice, or whether it's through contemporary abortion, an agenda item of the evil one is to attack the life of children born and unborn. And thus, as God's people, who we see here that God is celebrating the heroics of the midwives who protect life, we too war to protect life. And so this is the evil, this is the suffering, this is the pain we find God's people in the midst of this. Now, I, I want to pull some application just from chapter one before I get us into the first little bit of chapter two. I want to pull a reality and I want to pull a hope. There's a reality and there's a hope. Let's start with the reality. Here's the reality. The reality is if we find God's people here and again and again throughout the scriptures, in places of pain, hardship, and suffering, we will probably not make it through life without the bitter arrows of suffering experienced ourselves. Uh, when we committed, as this church started, to spend most of our year just with the systematic working through entire books of the Bible, I remember I was 28 years old when the church launched, and I just remember thinking to myself in the first couple of years, I feel like I'm preaching about suffering all the time. Guess what? Because it's in the Bible all the time. So much of the Bible is equipping God's people for times of suffering, is encouraging God's people in the midst of God's suffering, or praising God as he delivers us from suffering. And when Peter says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you. When Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. We didn't stop there. What did he say after that? But take heart. I don't know if he did that, but I always think he did. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so, the reality is, we will navigate life with the fiery arrows of pain, trial, and suffering. And, and I just want to equip us, just really quickly, like five commitments in times of suffering. Now, if you've walked in the room here today and you are in a time of bitter suffering, please hear me. I don't pretend to believe these are five easy steps out of suffering. Like, I don't, I don't lay these down to you as some trite, like, oh, try these. I know if you walked in here in the deep waters of suffering, you will probably still walk out feeling so much of the pain and the heaviness of it. But I do want us to make a commitment together when we're here. What has God called us to do? Five commitments in times of suffering. The first one I'll mention is this. I will not be surprised by suffering, but will embrace it as part of my discipleship. Commit to it. Let's commit to it right now. I will not be surprised by suffering, but I'll embrace it as part of my discipleship. I didn't say we had to like it. I didn't say we had to like it. But we'll embrace it as part of our discipleship. We'll consider it pure joy because we know how God is using it. Second, I, I will draw nearer to the Lord in the pain instead of distancing from the Lord due to the pain. 
I will draw nearer to the Lord in the pain instead of distancing. We're making a Psalms commitment here. When you read the Psalms and you see at the beginning of so many Psalms, they're crying out to the Lord. They're asking why. They're bringing their pain to him. And then by the end, but they're saying, but you're good, God. I'll trust you. If you never explain it to me, I will trust you. But we're going to bring our pain to him. We're not just going to distance away from him. He can handle our pain being brought to him. If you don't believe it, go read the Psalms. There's some raw and real stuff in there. Third, I'll lean deeper into Christian community instead of stiff-arming Christian community. You know when you're hurting? Can I tell you a secret? Don't tell anyone I told you. When you're hurting, people say dumb things. I'm a pastor. And when people have been hurting, I've said dumb things. You just sit there with them and you feel like you got to say something, so you're just trying to find what to say. Lord, help me what to say. And then you say something, you're like, oh, no. And when you're hurting and when you're in a sustained season of hurting, when dumb after dumb after dumb after dumb after dumb has been said, you just want to go, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. You can't stiff arm Christian community. We'll say dumb things. But go back to the living room and sit again and draw near and reach out. It's so important to navigate times of suffering. Fourth, I will worship even when I don't feel like worshiping. Do you know we worship him because he's God? And we worship him because he's good? And we worship him because he's Lord of all? And it doesn't It doesn't matter whether I feel like worshiping him. He is worthy of our worship whether I feel like worshiping him that day or not. And so we'll get up another day and we'll give him our worship. And then last thing, I'll double down on the goodness of God even when life feels anything but good. I will double down on the goodness of God even when life feels anything but good. Amen. Love you, brother. I have not experienced, I I have not experienced an inch of the depth of suffering of some of you have in here. But through my hardest season of life, I woke up in a dorm room in college every day and I stared at a brick mortar, you know, a brick wall again and I was like, oh, another day. And I had to tape to that wall when my eyes opened. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because I did not feel like rejoicing in another day at that time. But we double down on his goodness. Even when life doesn't feel good. So there's the reality. Now the hope. And, and this, hope is, this hope is twofold. We're going to get to the big application of the hope as we get into chapter 2. And don't worry, I'm not preaching all of chapter 2, okay? But as we get into we're going to get into the big application of the hope. But, but, but before we get there, I want us to pull out some smaller application of hope in the midst of suffering, trials, persecution, and hardship. And we saw it mentioned in chapter 1, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they what? The more they were oppressed, the more they what? 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians are like, ah! The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. How is it that a people can be oppressed like they're being oppressed in oppressive slavery and living on their evil infanticide? And how is it that they're multiplying and they're growing in strength because Pharaoh doesn't understand something? He's not ultimately in a battle against a people group. He's ultimately in a battle against God. And our God has the ability in some of the hardest, most persecuted circumstances to see his kingdom multiply. Do you know we're seeing that still to this day? Do you know in some of the areas of the world where the, of the, world where the church is most persecuted, it is flourishing and multiplying the most? Do you want to know what country is seeing some of the most explosive growth of the church right now? Iran. Only our God can do that. So, in times of persecution and suffering, we know that God is using that for our own sanctification. Do we not? We know that it doesn't feel good, we don't like it, but he's using it to grow us. But what if he's also using times of persecution and suffering to grow and multiply his kingdom too? There's hope in that, but more hope, more hope. And the more hope is that in, it's not that just God, God doesn't look on this and go, hey, I, I, Israelite, I'm using it for your good. Just keep going. No, he sees and he hears and he intervenes. And that's what we're going to see in chapter two. Second point, write this down. God sees this suffering and sends a savior to deliver. In Exodus chapter 2, there's a birth of a savior. I'm using that, not in a sense of making Moses equal with Jesus, but we're told that Jesus comes as a greater Moses. And so a savior is born to deliver the Israelites here, and a greater savior is going to be born, and I'm giving away the end of my message, so i got to stop right there, okay? Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore, what did she, she have, a son or a daughter? And bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months, and we know why. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him for a, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay, if you have Bible background, you have a disadvantage right now. Because those of us with Bible background go, oh yeah, that's just, that's just how Moses was born. If you're hearing this story for the first time, you're going, what? Moms, listen. How desperate of a place do you have to be in where the best choice you have for your three-month-old is to make a basket to lay them in and to set them on the edge of a river? 
Jeremy, is Judah still in here? Jeremy and Megan Hendon, they're holding their three-month-old Judah. Look at him. There's a mom in ancient Egypt who was at a place where the best option she had was to make a basket and put a baby boy that big into it and set him on the edge of a river and pray and hope to a gracious God to intervene. Thank you, guys. And a gracious God intervenes in an ironic way, in a way that only he can get the glory for. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh, remember that guy? The one who issues the edict for evil infanticide that all male Hebrews shall be killed. That guy, that Pharaoh, now his daughter comes down to the river. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. Her dad is driven by fear and hatred. His daughter takes pity. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. The irony of this, only God can allow a son to be born, laid in a basket, oh by the way, the word for basket's the same word for ark in the book of Genesis, where he would be saved and preserved to be found by the daughter of the evil king who is moved to pity, then a adopts him as her own son and he's now growing up as a grandson of the one who issued the edict that all boys like him should be killed all for the purpose all because of the purposes of God all for the glory of God and all for the good of God's people that's our God that's our God and then she names him and his name matters she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses means to draw out. So Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses the name thinking, oh, the significance is that I, I drew him out of the water. What she can't understand is that God has providentially given him that name because he would be the one to draw his people out of Egyptian bondage. Come on. Our God sees his people in their suffering. And he's not disinterested. He's not disengaged. But he directly sends a savior into the midst of the suffering to deliver his people. That they would dwell with him. And that he would dwell with them.
And as I've already said, this Exodus story is a huge neon pointer to a greater Exodus story. That when I asked earlier, you know, some of you walk in here in times of suffering. Some of you do tangibly, but all of us have walked in the room today apart from a Savior, under a curse and bondage of sin and under the suffering of that sin. But God would send who the Scriptures call a greater Moses, who would lead a greater exodus out of the bondage of sin and into the promised land of knowing Jesus as Lord away from the power of sin and away from the punishment of sin, looking and longing to one day be with him perfectly in his presence, a greater Moses has led a greater exodus. And every single one of us are welcomed into that exodus the moment we believe by faith. How great is our God. So if you're here today, for some reason, you found yourself in a place overwhelmed by your sin, crushed under the weight of your suffering, and you walk through the doors of a church, I'm here to tell you good news. The God who created you sees you, he loves you, he hears your cries, sent a savior and that greater that greater Moses savior his name is Jesus he's gone to the cross to atone for your sins to pay the penalty for your sins he's risen to life declaring his victory over death and the Bible tells you the moment you believe his death covers the penalty for your sin, which is death, and his righteousness is given to you. That's the greater exodus we're invited into today.